1: From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Before we meet today's guest, let me tell you about another podcast I host called Conversations on the Edge. Conversations on the Edge introduces you to a motley crew of thinkers with offbeat and bold perspectives on spirituality, community and culture. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you enjoy Essential Conversations, you will love Conversations on the Egg just as much. Our guest today, Dr. Will Cole, is a leading functional medicine expert who consults with individuals worldwide and is the author of Ketotarian, the mostly plant-based plan to burn fat, boost your energy, crush your cravings, and calm inflammation. His new book is The Inflammation Spectrum, Find Your Food Triggers and Reset Your System. Dr. Cole is featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Will Cole, welcome to Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Well, it's going to be an interesting conversation for me because I know absolutely nothing about inflammation or Functional medicine. So let's let's start with that. Um, help us understand what is functional medicine and how it differs from conventional medicine.
2: Yeah. So um, as you mentioned, my my day job is consulting patients online. So my like from eight a.m. to six p.m. I'm consulting patients via webcam, uh, all in different states and countries, kind of the goal uh, and what they're looking for and when I, I, I'm i there to give them is to get to the root facets of why they're struggling with different health problems. So it could be autoimmune problems. That's probably our top patient base. Uh, and that can manifest in different ways. There's over a uh, over hundred different autoimmune type problems. Um, and then digestive problems, hormonal problems, things like anxiety and depression, chronic fatigue. But if you had to differentiate between functional medicine and, and mainstream or conventional medicine. Uh, first thing is we we run more comprehensive labs. So we want to look at what's driving this in the first place. Like why does somebody have a health problem? So we want to look and get objective data from the leading labs in their space and get their vantage point as to what's going on and then we put all of this stuff together to look at these pieces to the puzzle and looking at the things like the gut-brain axis and what's going on in the gut or if there is hormonal imbalances or looking at inflammation or reactivities or toxicities or chronic infections. All of these things give rise to why somebody is struggling with their health issue. Um, and then we realize we're all created differently. There's not a cookie-cutter approach to getting well. For example, you could have you know, 100 people with chronic fatigue syndrome, and really that diagnosis is just saying they're chronically fatigued. It's not saying why they're chronically fatigued. Um, so we want to go upstream, as it were, or go. What's the underlying component that's driving their symptoms? So we see that chronic fatigue in this example as a check engine light. We know the check engine light's on. We know they're not feeling well, but why? We want to look under the hood, proverbially speaking, and seeing, looking at the other components that are 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 not operating properly in their health, that's causing them to feel the way that they so do. So let,
1: let me just jump in for a second. Yeah. Okay. So I call you up and you interview me in one way or another, then what you send me out to get, do you write prescriptions for that? I mean, to get yeah. lab results? Is it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. We would give you requisition forms for labs. So depending, and that's where it starts with the health history. Cause you don't want to, don't want to run labs just for the sake of it, but a good health history. And gives us in functional medicine the the awareness of what labs are the most pertinent for you what are the stones so to speak that are most likely to have something underneath it so we can get some good solid objective data and we put all that on a spreadsheet so we can get objective data a baseline as to what's causing these problems so it's really illuminating for the person that's already knows they're struggling with their health problem but they can see on paper whoa like this is Going on here, it makes complete sense. Now we have we have to know what we're up against to do something about it. So that's uh where the fun begins because we can start leaning into these protocols, using food as medicine, using natural botanical medicines, using medications when needed to really be customized to the individual. So in short, it's evidence-based alternative medicine.
1: Okay. So 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 I, I wanna really get into this food as medicine, which I thought was really interesting. But sure. Uh, I'm wondering, you know, I I know one of the complaints that people have about going to their physician, even if they love their doctor, is that there's so little time. The doctor's got a million people in the waiting room uh, and, and they're stressed. Everyone's stressed. Now, how much time do you talk with me on the phone before you send me off for labs?
2: You're absolutely right. I think that the mainstream system set up, they are oversaturated, they are busy, they're dealing with symptom care, uh, and that's the way the system's set up. But yeah, we spend a lot more time. So my initial consultation is going to be over an hour long, maybe an hour and a half. And that's just with me, let alone my team before and after that. So it's quite uh, more time intensive. But as you get a baseline, then you can spend a little bit less time, but it's still going to be a lot longer. So each visits at least a half an hour. Uh, to 45 minutes, sometimes an hour for more complicated cases each time because it's needed. I mean, and that's that holding space for people that are really struggling. And, and I really find there's a duality to functional medicine. There's the science, which I just talked about, like the labs and getting evidence and f- giving people data on why they feel the way that they do. But the other side of that is the art of it all. And, and it's, it's holding space for people that are really struggling. It's the space in between the labs. It's using real life as a lab too. And knowing how to make all these changes that they need in their life, realistic and practical. And just people want to be heard. People are so oftentimes told there's nothing wrong with them. You're just getting older. You're just depressed. You're an antidepressant. And they're really not listened to,
1: yeah, that that really is important. I, I've read somewhere that essential to to a person's healing is that sense of feeling listened to by your doctor. and yeah. so and, and like everything else, I mean uh, medicine in general is is also certainly rooted in science, but then there's always an art to it, diagnosing and and I guess and all of that kind of thing. I mean, I looked it up cause I knew nothing about it. And one of the first things you find when you look it up is it's quite controversial. And mm-hmm. how, how do you, how do you deal with that criticism?
2: Well, I don't know what they're talking about. The way that I operate it is I'm using very safe. We're using food as medicine. There's nothing radical about that. We're using herbs and botanicals that are all well published in the scientific literature. So who's trained me is the Institute for Functional Medicine, IFM, another gold standard in this space. The Cleveland Clinic has a functional medicine center, and that's who's trained IFM trained all the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic's Functional Medicine Center and has trained me. I mean, the Cleveland Clinic, you don't get more mainstream and conventional than that. And they spent millions and millions of dollars opening up this world class functional medicine center. They're not spending that type of money and they're not opening that up to something that is dangerous for people, that is controversial to the point of, of quackery or even to delegitimize it in that way. So I think it's very easy to make broad sweeping statements on social media or, or in a press statement online without really looking at the facts. I think the statistics speak for themselves. The United States, we spent more. Money on healthcare than the next ten top spending countries combined. Yet we have the shortest lifespan, the most chronic disease, and we have super high healthcare costs. And to then call a new field of healthcare to come in and actually is providing sustainable alternatives that long term, getting getting people healthy and to lower healthcare costs is actually a great thing. It's a positive thing. So I think that the more people are learning about it and understand what we're doing, it's actually a really positive thing. It's not a negative thing.
1: So let me let me ask you about the fact that as a country, we are spending so, we do spend so much money and our life expectancy is shrinking for much of the population. You know, it's going down rather than up. This is not simply an individual problem. It's, I mean, I, you know, an, as a patient, let's say, I suffer from inflammation. There's things you can do. You can use food as medicine, which, again, I do want to get to shortly. But the society, I think you're saying, is also suffering from inflammation. And there's this symbiotic relationship between maybe the stress and the social order in the society in general and the stress in the individual. Can you speak a little bit why that's falling and how that connects to the notion of societal inflammation? Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. Um, And and there's a difference between health span and lifespan. And I think, you know, there are certain studies to show for certain populations that people are actually living longer, but yet they're living longer, sicker lives. So Mm. the goal from a functional medicine standpoint isn't just to increase lifespan, but it's also to increase health span. And nobody, no matter what population you look at, is seeing an expansion of health span in the standard model of care in the mainstream sort of approach to uh, health and wellness and human health. So, um, I think that the we have to look at what we're doing here you know and doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting a different result and it'd be one thing to be spending trillions and trillions of dollars if it was saving lives if it's working but you can't really look at the amount of money that's being spent and saying that it's actually producing results it's actually not um but so I'm not a, against conventional medicine some people are alive because of medications and there are life-saving advancements in mainstream medicine and there are life-saving surgical interventions that are needed so it's not us versus them again the cleveland clinic has a functional medicine center uh, so they have the best of conventional medicine the best of western medicine when it's needed and the best of alternative approaches and being evidence-based and saying what's going to produce results to actually get these labs looking great get these people healthy reducing and eliminating medications as it's appropriate and possible and there is so much agency that I find that people have over their lives are these chronic health problems. But to, to your point, inflammation is this common link between all these health problems. So we deal with autoimmune issues those are all inflammatory. when you deal with diabetes, heart disease, cancer, all inflammatory, chronic inflammatory problems, we deal with digestive problems. to mental health issues. We like to separate in our Western thinking mental health from physical health. but in fact, mental health is physical health and our brain is part of our body. And the idea that it's two separate things is actually not true. So there's a whole field of research looking at, uh, it's referred to as the cytokine model of cognitive function. It's basically how looking out how inflammation, cytokines are pro-inflammatory cells. How is inflammation impacting how our brain works? How is inflammation impacting mental health? So inflammation is tied to anxiety and depression and fatigue and brain fog. So it's the lack of balance, it's inflammation in check is a wondrous thing. It fights viruses and bacteria, it's it's needed for human existence. But it's when inflammation is thrown out of balance when problems arise. So it's, it's the Goldilocks principle. It's like so much of our world, both on a cosmic and a macro level, but also on a physiological level. Inflammation is not inherently bad. It's it's When it's thrown out of balance, when it's chronic inflammation, it's burning too high for too long. That's the problem. And the same with our hormones. We don't want high hormones. We don't want hormone deficiency. Same with our gut microbiome, all the good bacteria in our gut. We don't want overgrowth of bacteria, but we don't want a deficiency of bacteria. I think you can find a lot of similarities between what's going on in the societal level and at an environmental level. I mean, you look at climate change and what's going on in, in the planet le- level of it, There, it's a disturbance of balance. It's like a chronic inflammation of the planet. But yeah, that's what's happening on on, on an individual level too. And you look at people are going through on a, basically on a health level, climate change in their body, this sort of shifting of loss of balance. So
1: that, that's what I was wondering about. So there's planetary inflammation, societal inflammation, yeah, and that's all impacting on individual inflammation. Mm-hmm. In addition to whatever else I may be doing with the way I eat and and my lifestyle, the impact of economic stress, political dysfunction, and just talking about the United States for a second, but it's really everywhere. But mm-hmm. um, the the the. Economic, environmental, and political dysfunction in the country is how does how does a body cope with that without falling victim to this extreme inflammation?
0: Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th.
2: Yeah, I think in many ways we are set up to fail, and we're in we're thrusted into a world that is not in alignment with sustainability. It's not in alignment with human health because our it's estimated that our genetics haven't changed in in ten thousand years, but yet our world it, that we're living in has changed very dramatically in a very short period of time. When you talk about environmental toxins, the to things that we're exposed to on a physical level, to the mental, emotional, spiritual imbalance and disconnection that people are having too. I mean, we have an epidemic of loneliness and we are quote unquote connected uh, by technology and technology is wonderful. It's how we're talking right now, but there's no checks and balances with this new phenomenon that we've seen uh, grow in just the past 10, 15 years. Uh, So this is uh, a mismatch between genetics and epigenetics that is awakening these genetic predispositions like never before. I mean, the gene predispositions for these health problems have been around for 10,000 years. Okay, so that's not the new kid on the block. The new kid on the block is the epigenetic, the environmental things that are awakening these genetic predispositions like never before. So it it is the heart of what we do in functional medicine. It's the heart of not just us in functional medicine. It's the heart of researchers in the autoimmune and chronic health space the researchers are looking at all the stuff that we talk about in functional medicine it's on pubmed you can kind of you can look at what researchers are looking at as these different components environmental components food components stress toxin components and these epigenetic factors that are awakening these gene predispositions so it's um it's not just completely functional medicine we're in functional medicine we're just looking at these research that's coming out of the scientific journals of how to apply this in people's lives in a practical way. And one of the
1: ways you do it is, and you've referred to it a couple of times, and I keep saying we're going to get to it. So let's get to it. Now, using food as medicine. So you you write in the book, what we eat is either feeding health or fighting it. So let me let the listeners know that the book has a fairly detailed questionnaire that's that helps Dr. Cole, in this case, that helps him figure out what kind of issues you're you're dealing with. So to ask you, doctor, for some generic thing, I may be asking for too much, but are there foods that we should, regardless of of where we are in the inflammation spectrum, are there foods that we should simply avoid?
2: Yeah, I I think that I started the book off with the, uh, the quiz, it's adapted from questions that I ask patients, but I wanted the reader that maybe I would never consult online that just, they want to get the book and start making changes in their life. I wanted them to understand their body because a lot of times people think just because something's common, they equate that with normalcy. Um, And just because you're going through something every day doesn't necessarily mean you should settle for it. And um, we go through the different sections of the inflammation spectrum as I see it. And we look at brain health and gut health and hormone health and autoimmunity and detoxification. All the systems of our body that are so brilliantly interconnected. And we talk about polyinflammation, and that is the interconnectedness of the body. Like, for example, things happening in the gut can influence the brain. Our gut and brain are formed from the same fetal tissue, and and the body is so wondrous. So we start the book out that way to give people an understanding about where they're at on the inflammation spectrum, what areas are more problematic for them, and then they have their own toolbox, depending on that quiz score result. But the foods that we talk about in the book are all things that studies have shown to be more likely to be problematic in most people, meaning that it's gonna be the low-hanging fruits, so to speak, of the, the, if you're going to remove anything, look at those foods, but I don't want to make broad sweeping statements there. And I want the reader to kind of find out what their body loves and what their body hates to find food peace, to find clarity. Because as you said, every food we eat either feeds inflammation or fights it. There's no innocuous, like doing nothing for you food. It's, It's instructing your biochemistry in some way, some in negligible ways, but it's doing one thing or the other. So the, what I call the core four in the book are grains, added sugar, high omega-6 oils like canola oil and vegetable oil, and dairy. Again, those foods, we, we talk about the better versions of those. We talk about the not-so-good versions of those. So I, I want the reader to really experiment for themselves to see what that looks like. But I think that we should at least look at those four categories of foods or additives to say how do I feel off of that? And then when I reintroduce it, how do I feel, uh, and really see, we all have a different tolerance to these things. Some people can handle some of that. Some people can't, but I really want to explore that. And then we have a little bit more of an advanced track for people that score higher on the quiz. And that is called the eliminate track. So it's the core four plus four more. And that adds nightshades. which are peppers and tomatoes and eggplants and goji berries. And we talk about nuts and seeds, legumes and eggs. Again, all whole foods, nothing inherently bad, but it's the heart of functional medicine. It's bioindividuality. Just because something's healthy doesn't necessarily mean it's right for you. And, and what works for you may not work for me. And so that's really the exploration.
1: Right. So for example, let me ask you how, let me see if I can get my head around this. So I, I've been diagnosed with celiac disease. I mean, that was decades ago. And as soon as I got myself off gluten, I was a new person. I mean, before, yeah. before I experienced that, my, my dad was dying of, I guess you could say like gluten poisoning. He was celiac. Yeah. His mother died of it. We didn't know what it was then. My right. dad was in the hospital. It looked like cancer. He was wasting away until he got a new doctor in who said, oh, I just graduated and I heard about this thing called celiac. They took him off gluten and he just rebounded overnight. If I eat gluten, I have major problems within half an hour. And when I get off it again, I mean, I I haven't actually had anything that, you know, knowingly eaten gluten in decades, but I was very sick and then I was no longer sick. When someone tries to eliminate some of these things just to see how they react to the, to not having that food in their diet, do they have to really struggle to see effects or is it like me? It's like night and day.
2: It depends. I, we, actually, there's a section in the book we call the celiac spectrum in the inflammation spectrum. So sometimes it's overt and obvious and sometimes it's mild. So it depends on how severe the case is and what we're talking about. But definitely you do not have to be celiac to see a dramatic, obvious, overt, like, okay, this is not working for me, but it's not necessarily because there are some celiacs out there. And then there's other autoimmune type problems that you would think, okay, they're going to have an extreme reaction to that. But I I know celiacs that have wheat and they can have some of it and they're not going to have extreme reactions. And then I have non-celiacs that have very extreme reactions to wheat and other foods too. So it's not just about wheat. So it's definitely dependent on the person, a lot of things to consider. Uh, but, I teach in the book in that reintroduction chapter, like what to look out for. Uh, and it's not gonna look the same for everybody. So we, I wanna look at all the signs and symptoms so people can kind of check in with themselves again to kind of have that uh, check engine light for themselves to see, okay, look, this isn't worth it. And at that point, it's, and maybe this is, was was the case for you. At that point, it's not about this punitive, I can't have wheat and pasta and all the all the gluten. It's about, no, I love feeling better more than I miss that right. food. It's not worth it. And I want people to have that same aha moment for themselves.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you talk about triggers and gluten itself was, was a, is a huge trigger for me. And it's in no way punitive giving it up because I remember what happens when I eat it. My dad, on the other hand, he would go like six months gluten-free and then he would say, okay, I'm cured. And then he would have a bagel and nothing would happen. See, I told you I'm cured. Then he would have half a dozen bagels in the next meal and then he'd be sick for days. Right. So part of it is, is psychology. My dad saw it as a punitive thing that he was giving yeah. up you know, bagels and that was his lifeblood or something. But if <laughs> if you really are... Benefiting from uh, f- from eliminating or reducing inflammation, you're not. It's not a struggle. It's, you, you're just going to go. Oh, this is this is too good to give up by eating right. something yeah. that's bad for me.
2: Exactly. Yeah, and, and that's. I want people to just have that paradigm shift because I think we live in an age now where we don't need another diet or a restrictive thing. It's just about loving your body enough to feed it good things and just shifting our paradigm and, and valuing the gifts that you've been giving and, be, and being a good steward in that way to the, the gifts you've been given in your life to say look i'd rather feel good than, than feel miserable but it's that baggage i think that a lot of people have around food and restriction and that's really not where i'm coming from at all there should be a grace and lightness to wellness and to food again. And it's about, like you said, like it's that psychology or the, um, what's the ethos of why you're doing what you're doing in the first place? Because I think the, the genesis of sustainable wellness should be coming from a place of self-respect. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that and they're coming from a place of like gritting their teeth to do another diet or because someone told them to do it versus just saying, look, no, this is my life and I want to live as vibrant as I can in the time that I have.
1: So let me ask you about something you said just a moment ago about loving your body. Mm-hmm. My sense is that that is very rare in the United States anyway. That if people are aware of their bodies at all, they are not loving their bodies. We're we're bombarded by advertising and and all kinds of dunning kinds of things that you know, your body isn't good enough, your body isn't isn't what it needs to be. And and I think People have a hard time loving their body, even loving their body enough to get healthier. Do you run into mm-hmm. that when people uh, are, are consulting with you?
2: Oh my goodness, yes! It's such a major issue in our culture, and I think that it's on so many different levels. It's on a media level. It's 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 actually physiologically impacting. Like just they're scrolling on the social media with this FOMO inducing content, plus the blue light and all the stimulation is stimulating our amygdala of our brain, which is like the fear, anxiety, shame-based part of the brain. So the prefrontal cortex is like disconnected from the amygdala. And that's the epidemic we're having. And that's the tribalism that's going on in our culture. That's the us versus them. It's this sense of lack that people are having. Mm -hmm. And a mantra in our clinic for our patients is you cannot heal a body you hate. You cannot shame your way into health and wellness and think it's going to be sustainable for you. So it's, it's paramount. You have to get your head and your heart right before you get everything else right. Otherwise, it's just another fad diet. And that's really the antithesis of, of our message.
1: Well, and that's a perfect place to end. You have to get your head and your heart right before you can do the rest. Our guest today, Dr. Will Cole, is the author of The Inflammation Spectrum, Find Your Food Triggers and Reset Your System. Dr. Cole is featured in the January-February issue of Spirituality and Health magazine, and you can learn more about his work at drwillcole.com. Will, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations.
2: Thank you, Emily.
1: Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like Essential Conversations, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show on your preferred podcast app. You can also follow me on Spirituality and Health's website, where I now write a regular column called Roadside Musings, and on my new podcast, Conversations on the Edge. And don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker Trupiano, and our executive producer is Catherine Drury Wagner. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening.